Hey, Joe. Hello. Thanks for joining me again. Oh, my pleasure. Well, you make this better and easier. Really? You think so? Yeah. A little well, Joe have, makes the medicine go down better, we have, I think. Uh, I have fun with it, that's for sure. Students must think it's strange. There's a dude named Joe, and like, they never <laughs> meet me, and they're just hearing me jam, jibber-jabber you're, and yibber-yammer and all you're that. You're welcome anytime. You're welcome anytime. Cool. Yeah. A couple of challenges in this reading to the idea of law and economics, the idea of rational actors to overcome problems, to deliver efficiency. And we're going to focus again on efficiency um, for, for this reading. Cool. And there are two kinds of challenges that the two readings that, um, that, that I asked the students to do before the cases present. So the first is this tragedy of the commons, which is similar to a prisoner's dilemma problem, if you've seen that before, or a public right. goods problem. The issue here is that because of particular circumstances, which we can go into, it is people's very rationality that drives them to behave in ways that are antisocial, in the sense that because they can't trust others, they end up doing things. Other people who are in the same position end up doing some of those same things, and right. you get this downward spiral where you completely deplete a grazing land or to completely deplete a fishery or overpopulate the earth or whatever it is, right? And you can't stop because it's not, not because you're stupid, not because you lack information, but precisely because you are rational. Yeah, so, the, and in that sense, it's a it's a um, it, it's a problem with the rational actor approach that is internal to the approach, right? Uh, that it is it is precisely the extent to which it is accurate that you would predict that there will be these problems. Exactly, exactly. And so, if we think that the case for regulation, rather than just letting the market be the market, if all we're driving at is efficiency, right? If we had thought that, well, we just need regulation to help us overcome certain transaction costs, we might have a problem with some cases of open access commons or public goods problems. Certain, certain kinds of problems are going to occur where you could still see it as a transaction cost problem. You and can. I, I think it is a transaction cost problem, but it may, it may make more sense to recognize a certain category of cases of where cooperation is difficult that you're really going to have to kind of change things up. And, and we can talk about the different ways in, in just a moment. So that's one category of things that I want to think about. These, the problem where it is rationality itself, which is causing a true death spiral in some, in some market or zone of cooperation. Yeah. The second is a set of challenges to the rational actor model itself, that it is just wrong as a description of human nature or of human behavior. And Right. If we're consequentialists, the entire reason that we resort to the, to the rational actor model is because we could use it simply to predict consequences. Right. I mean, we're trying to figure out whether rule A or rule B will be better mm -hmm. or whether to have a rule at all or just let the market run itself. And letting the market run itself is a rule, as you know, but we're not going to get into that in, the, in, in this class, at least not now. Uh, um, but uh, in deciding whether to intervene and how to intervene, we're trying to predict how things are going to unfold. And the rational actor model was a model of human behavior, which helped us predict how people would respond to our intervention. And then we can make a decision based on our running that model. But what if that model is wrong? What if people don't respond to, uh, to opportunities the same way they respond to things that they already have? What if they aren't self-interested in satisfying their own preferences, but they would rather satisfy other people's preferences? What if, as sometimes happens, and you know, I teach property, and so sometimes I teach dissolution of marriage cases, and you can imagine other ones, including neighbors who are mad at each other for a certain reason. Mm. 
people get into a situation where they value other people's suffering more than they value their own happiness. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> right? Yeah, and, where, where the one contributes mightily to the other. Um, and, and these shortcomings are, I think, they're external uh, in a yep. way that the others are internal. These are external uh, uh, critiques. Of course, um, there, there's, a, there's, there's what I would call a cheap or silly version of this critique. Um, you know, the model is wrong. All models are wrong. Of course. Um, because um, if a model were right, it would be the thing it's modeling, not a model. Right. Um, if a map were perfect, it would be the world, not a map. Mm-hmm. The useful thing to do is to ask, is the way the model departs from reality um, the kind of departure that makes it a lot less helpful for me, given my objectives as a model? And for because and yeah. just to give an example that every, because that sounds a little abstract, right? Yeah. Um, if you've if you've ridden a, a subway in a major city somewhere, and you've seen the way the subway map looks on the wall at the subway station, you're thinking of the New York City subway map, famous. There's for a its great design. example, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Um, that is <laughs> that is not accurate with respect to the way the stations are actually laid out on the surface of the earth. So you mean if you if you were to go above ground. And say, I'm going to do a walking tour of the subways, right. you know, subterranean and pathway. Maps, I'm just going to walk on a straight line. Right. Right. Um, no. Okay. Well, oh my gosh, the model's wrong. Yes, I suppose. Um, it, it, in the sense that it's not a great map for walking above ground. It is, though, a great map for using the subway, which, interestingly, is where the map is located. <laughs> it's on the wall in the subway. Yeah. So it's that's an important thing to realize when you're when you're critiquing a model when you're using a model when you're evaluating is it doing what you want it to do is it serving its purpose right um and so the you know the and i guess a final point of comparison would be what if you didn't have a map even a crummy one right even one that was wrong in certain very important ways right might it still be better than no map at all maybe not could be maybe could, not. maybe not yeah right depends Again, it depends on a criterion of value, a criterion of goodness that you have to bring to the discussion. Yeah. Uh, the question you're asking and in, in the, in the domain in which you're investigating are going to drive whether the model is any good, right? right? I mean, so when you go upstairs and you pour yourself a glass of water, you know, we're, we're downstairs from my kitchen right now, but if we went upstairs and we poured glasses of water, I would unthinkingly reach out for the pitcher and I would pour water from the pitcher into the glasses and I would think of water as this kind of continuous substance which falls downward when it comes out of a pitcher and falls into the glass, right? Cool. There is a very important sense in which that is not descriptive of reality, right? There's a molecular dynamics going on with those uh, water uh, molecules. Some of them are going into the air as I, right? a, as I pour the thing. And so there's another way of seeing what's happening, which is totally unlike how my mind is seeing that thing at that right. moment, right? And I don't care. Because what I care about is filling up glasses with water from the pitcher, and that is going to behave pretty much how I think it's going to behave. And so yeah. my model of what's, what the reality is is totally sufficient um, in order for me to do the task that, I, that is in front of me. Right. But if I were doing some other scientific task, which relied very precisely, you know, or relied on very precise estimates of how much water would end up in a beaker when poured from another pitcher, the fact that some of that water is being dispersed into the air and water has complicated dynamics and some of it may stick to the side in various ways and form a meniscus on the side of the thing, like all that is going to matter. I may need to Could know matter, a lot yeah. more about that, right? right? So law is no different, right? And economics is no different. 
right? We, we use these models because there's no other way to do anything. You have to use these models, right, in order to make predictions about yep. anything. Now, the, the behavioral law and economics piece uh, in talking about these different bounds, right, bounded rationality, uh, bounded preferences, da da da. Um, the bounded rationality one, I, I guess my, my, the difficulty I have with that as a critique of the rational actor model is from a transaction cost point of view, the rational actor model isn't making an assumption of unbounded rationality. Well, it uh, is instead making... of assuming bounded rationality, in that information isn't free. Well, right? but, information yeah. has costs. But it's also assuming that, you know, when we think about the Boomer versus Atlantic cement case from last time, right? It's assuming that, you know, a neighbor would be indifferent, would, would pay the same amount to get clean air as she would ask to receive polluted air, right? That there's a certain value of clean air and it doesn't matter whether she already has it and is being asked to part with it or if she's trying to acquire it, right? The same way, like if I got, you know, I should be willing to pay, you know, whatever I'm willing to pay to buy, say, a new computer is how much I should be willing to accept to part with that computer, right? Because right? all computers are like every other computer. And there are important situations in which that doesn't appear to obtain. And I think it's True. overstated. I've got a good friend who wrote an article saying yeah. people have gone too far with this so-called endowment effect, right? Right. Um, but there, there are senses in which it does obtain. The rationality assumption is that I have stable values that I place on things and I'm willing to, so if something is more valuable, like a, that, that I'm able to kind of calculate how, um, uh, how valuable things are. I'm able to do present value calculations and I make rational trade-offs based on what I think something is worth and what I think uh, this other thing is worth and that if something is worth more to me than the thing I have, I'll trade for it. Like it's all of those things, right? It may be that people don't view parting with a thing and acquiring a thing as symmetrical. It may be that they're able to be quite rational given that they do not view them as symmetrical. They can reason about them quite clearly and have preferences about them, and those preferences are even stable. Right. right? It, um, yeah. It's just they don't happen to think they're the same thing. Um, I don't know that I would call it a, an example of their bounded rationality that within, they view them as right. different, not the same. But that doesn't fit within. So, so if you haven't, if your view of the value of an entitlement depends on whether you have it, that doesn't fit within the rational actor model, which which imagines a world of kind of freely trading entitlements, absent transaction costs, ultimately getting to kind of an optimal Pareto state. Mark Kelman has a really great example where you've got a house, right? And suppose you got a TV in your house, right? And it's it's an older TV, perfectly functional, but guess what? Some amazing new TVs are out. You want one of these things, maybe, you know, much bigger set, beautiful. In, in his article, it's old enough where the set you're getting rid of is black and white and the new one is color, which is kind of cute, right? But you can imagine you're replacing a smaller, worse set with a bigger, better TV set. Here's a question. What do you do with the TV set you're getting rid of? Do you sell it? Or do you say, you know what? It'd be nice to have that other set, say, in this other room. You know, I've got that maybe in the kitchen. I could have a, a kitchen TV. I could have a uh, one in the guest room or somewhere else. And can you imagine yourself keeping that TV, even if, if you didn't have it, you wouldn't go out and buy an equivalent one? So suppose that TV is worth, you know, $100. Would you go out and buy a $100 TV to put in the kitchen or in the guest room? Uh, probably not. Y imagine that you wouldn't, right? You're marginal in that sense. Right. Uh, but can you imagine that even though you wouldn't, you might hold on to that TV rather than sell it? 
Sure. Um, part of that, I think, relates to the fact that selling TVs is something you might do much less frequently. Mm-hmm. So you have much less information about that than about having the TV, which you're very well informed of, right? You've had it for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, and having TVs in general is something you're probably more experienced with uh, since you don't own a TV store. I'm guessing that's not the hypothetical because uh, I think that person might have a different answer. Uh, they they might. That's the hypothetical, right? If You have to imagine that you can easily sell it without transaction costs. Right. Which, might you still hold on to it? Which makes it very unlike a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the transaction cost piece of that is, is, is getting glossed over in a way that I think suggests that this critique isn't as powerful as some of the people who've made it think it is. Unlike the fairness insight, which I think is very powerful and there is no transaction cost workaround that captures back a bunch of that ground. The fairness aspect. Yeah, but that's uh, that's outside of this, right? I mean, the fairness ground is even if this is correct as a matter of efficiency, we should do something else. That's right? my point. And, and, and this is like, no, this is not correct as a matter of efficiency because people just don't operate <laughs> this way, right? And, and so the, the other example he gives, which I think rings somewhat true, uh, is, well, I mean, rings true to me. Uh, in other words, I can interrogate my own psychology and, and consider myself mm-hmm. thinking this way, even without the TV thing, right? But uh, even, even if I can't in the TV scenario. Uh, the example that he gives is that someone has maybe, I don't know where they've gone, but some by some... Uh, chance you have a friend who has given you what amounts to a very expensive bottle of wine, okay? And imagine there's no connection. This person's gone. They're not around anymore. But in your in your cellar, you have this very expensive bottle of wine, which is much more than you would actually go out and pay a bottle of wine for. Sure. Now, you could sell it. Let's suppose that your local wine store regularly buys bottles and what they're willing to pay for it is in excess of what, you know, of what you would pay to acquire that bottle. Okay? Suppose that were the case. Okay. You have some friends over. It's a special occasion. Do you drink it? Obviously, now, obviously, it, the answer is yes. You do drink it with your friends. <laughs> well, no. the The answer is only if you are over twenty one. Obviously, but if you're over twenty one, and, and it's a safe, that's and, the we it's were a safe about. environment and all right. of that, yeah, yeah. Then, yeah. Um, so, but why? Why do you do that? Even though you wouldn't have paid to acquire that bottle in the first instance. In other words, you 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 you. Forwent the opportunity to receive, say, let's suppose it's a two hundred dollar bottle of wine. You you forwent the opportunity to right. receive the two hundred dollars. Well, there's actually a few answers to this. I mean, w- w- one answer is there are a lot of people who would who would have sold it. Mm-hmm. There are some people who wouldn't have sold it. Um, and my guess is a big part of the difference between them uh, is the life experiences the people have had. Who some people are comfortable doing things like going to the bottle shop and selling them a bottle of wine. Mm-hmm. Some people aren't. I guess all all that he's asking you to do with this example is to recognize that psychological impulse that you have, like to hold on to this thing that you have and enjoy it rather than convert it. Yeah. Right. And which is, you know, I'd ask the students to think in their own lives about times where maybe they they could have gotten something which in an in another setting they might have valued more, but went ahead and enjoyed the thing. I don't know what that would be. I mean, there are lots right. of different situations. Uh, uh, Mark, Mark Kelman also gives a few other examples, though, of clear, I think, just maybe calculation bias. W- one is this idea of this madman's lottery, where you, you know, there's a stadium of 100,000 people, and you know that, I don't know, 10 people are going to be shot in the stadium. So it's, there's a madman on the loose, right? And that's going to happen. And the question is, how much would you pay if you're in the stadium to get out? Right. 
and you can ask a different group of people or even the same in the right conditions, uh, what, what, how much they would have to pay, to, how much they'd have to be paid to, to go, go in. inside. Right. And there isn't an amount of money you could pay them to go inside. <laughs> right. There is not. Right. Correct. This, you're, you're just answering this as you, as you, Joe. Well, no, I'm saying, I'm saying the, the, the thing that's making this hypo work is we all know that the people who are outside, there is not a, a number you could name that would get any of them to go inside. Now, if, if there were 100,000 people in there and, and you knew 10 people would be shot, your chances of being shot are like one out of 10,000, right? Uh, how much would you pay to get out? Would you pay everything that you had? I imagine most people would. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose it's just one person who would be shot out of a hundred thousand. So, you know, we all take, we all undertake risks all the time. Right. right. And, and a one in a million risk is something that we accept all the time when we yeah. drive around. Right. So, yeah. And that's a, that's a, the, a lot of these examples are about risk yeah. and our inability to deal with risk very effectively. Mm-hmm. Um, but those numbers should be the same. The amount I should be willing to pay to get out should be exactly the same as the amount that I would be willing to accept to go in. Right. Yeah. Those I, should be the same number. I just, if we were, this is, if we were rational calculating machines. Yes. As the model and assumes. There, and, and there were no odd risk assessments or we didn't value risks differently depending on whether they were on one side of the ledger or the other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's all true. And, and so it's only a suggestion that we depart from the model. So if you recognize in yourself, students, that, you know, if I were inside and I realized that, boy, I'm looking around at all these people and I'm saying, I'm not going to pay, like, I'm not going to get rid of my entire fortune or borrow money to pay an, an outrageous sum. Rather, I'd pay something to get out of there because, you know, I'd pay to avoid that risk. But I'm looking around, I'm seeing a bunch of people. It's probably not going to be me who gets shot. Um, I, this is a, it's a grim example, isn't it? But it's the one he uses. So I want to use it. Uh, you know, you probably pay a reasonable amount of money, but it wouldn't be everything you had in the world. Whereas if someone says, you know, how much would we have to pay you to go into that stadium where this is going to happen? You know, and and in fact, if you do this experiment, you find out that people do exactly what you said, Joe. They, the amount of money that they would demand to go into the stadium is much, much, much higher than the amount that they would be willing to pay to leave. You can run similar experiments where you ask people about, like, if they were exposed to a virus, how much would they pay for a vaccine? Right. Versus how much would they be willing to be paid to be exposed to the virus and w- where there's a similar risk on each side and they can't do it and they, the, the numbers are all out of whack. So the point of these experiments is just to, and these, um, these thought experiments and actual experiments that they do with people, um, is just to kind of expose us to the idea that we are not calculating machines in this way. We don't calculate risk and treat things that we have the same as things that we don't have in every situation. Uh, we, d- we don't um, do present value calculations very well. We, we value things today much more highly than we value them in the future. You can, you can do experiments where you show people how much a, a water heater is going to cost in the long run. You know, they try to do this with the Energy Star stuff and they yeah. put how much it's going to cost. Right. People are extreme discounters, right? They, are, right? they are just, well, they will pay a lot more for a water heater over the course of its life if it has a lower sticker price today. Uh, and, and you can't explain this, uh, in, uh, kind of like, well, you're just a higher discounter because you have, because of, you know, you make less money and you think you'll make more in the future. Who knows exactly why it is, but anyway, so these are the kinds of irrationalities that, that people have. Okay. Um, and then there's a bounded, uh, there's bounded willpower and bounded self-interest. Bounded willpower is like, you know, Ulysses tying himself to the mast in the, uh, in, in the famed story, um, that, 
even if I want to be the kind of person who doesn't waste my money on gambling and goes, you know, and goes to the opera or, you know, being the kind of person I want to be, in fact, people aren't able to commit to themselves to those kinds of plans. Oh yeah. The example Sunstein gives is people joining Christmas clubs. Did you see that? This is the, a special savings club mm, that you can mm-hmm. join where you can only withdraw it over Christmas. Like, why would anybody ever do this? Right? <laughs> the only reason you would ever do it is because you don't trust yourself. You know how, you know, you know that you will not commit to the plan that you really want to commit to. And this is just right. the way people really are. This is what we trick ourselves into exercise plans and we give ourselves silly rewards and all sorts of things. Or the, or the, or you get advice like, you know, tell a friend that you have this goal and that way your friend will ask you about the goal. And these sorts of commitment devices. And, Finally, this uh, finally this bounded self-interest idea, this is the one we, we started with a, a little bit ago, right? That people are both more selfish and people are more selfless than the model predicts, right? People are more altruistic than the model predicts and they are more spiteful in, in the sense that like they'd be willing to spend money just to harm somebody else if right. they are in a, in a bad situation. So the model doesn't predict that, the mo- you know, and, and, or it often doesn't predict that. You can massage it a little bit so my preferences are to be altruistic or my preferences are to make you suffer but everything starts to break down once you once you do that and so to model real people you have to understand that they can get in these modes where they care more about other people than themselves or they care about hurting other people more than they care about benefiting themselves so in light of all these ways in which the rational actor model can can uh, have some shortcomings so what I think that to the extent that law assumes that there are rational actors and it, you know, when we think about plea bargaining, when we think about, um, contracting, when we think about, um, efficient breach, when we think about all of these rules, which depend on the idea that people have made rational judgments, we have to understand that these judgments are not always rational in the sense that the law assumes. So the, uh, behavioral law and economics movement has been in part an effort to suggests that leaving things up to the market because the market will produce Calder Hicks efficient results, will produce efficient results, might actually be misguided because your prediction about efficiency assumes that there are rational actors trading entitlements around to get to an efficient endpoint. But if, if, if in fact your, your actors are not rational as the market assumes, maybe as you say, they are rational in some other way, but they just are not what the, what the yeah. model assumes, then in fact, they won't rearrange entitlements in the market to reach an efficient result. Maybe it will reach some other result. And so maybe what the law can do is provide little incentives or nudges to kind of, or maybe guardrails, things which kind of keep people within rational bounds, which help people not develop the kind of antipathy that will cause them to want to hurt their neighbor more than they want to help themselves, right? Um, uh, Maybe we won't reward that behavior or maybe we'll specially punish that behavior. Uh, in a way that you wouldn't have thought you would have had to if you had stuck to the rational actor model. So it's sort of a, it's a, it's rational actor 2.0 in the sense that it is saying we had a model, it turns out to have some shortcomings. If we tweak the model, and and by that I mean make some systematic changes to it, we get some more insights from learning more about how people make decisions. And we then apply those insights and say, how can we improve our rational actor model? Maybe we call it a behavioral rational actor model. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and behavior man, as some of the critics have called it, right? Instead of <laughs> rational man, it's behavior man. I, I know, I mean, I know it's using man a lot, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the, the, then, uh, then we can still, you know, we've, we've, we've gotten some insights from round one that we're still making use of. We've now got insights in round two that we're making use of. And we're trying to hone the model. 
Right. Most of the phrase behavioral law and economics is the words law and economics, like three quarters of it. <laughs> yeah. So it's uh, it's a critique of law and economics, but it is it is in a sense a critique that is still part and parcel of a bigger enterprise with which I think it's largely consistent. Yeah. Um, and it may be that in a lot of contexts, uh, you don't get enough additional traction by shifting to the behavioral frame um, relative to the rational actor frame. And well, there's another aspect to this, that there's another aspect to the behavioral approach, which has to do with our preferences and the way we perceive things, which suggests that maybe in some social situations, what we should, what we're aiming for and what, what we find acceptable is not like Calder Hicks efficiency in uh, in a, in rational actor sense. So I'm thinking here of the banning of market transactions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I, I have that example of the Cabbage Patch doll uh, right. that, that Sunstein, Joles, and, and Thaler propose. So, so this is, and you can kind of think about whether you think this is fair. There's a doll at Christmas that all the kids want. Everybody wants this thing. And there's only one left in the store. And these are, you've seen the videos, haven't you, Joe, of the Walmart on Black Friday yeah, and people, people getting, getting trampled and everything. And, yeah. you know, and people are basically putting themselves in, 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 at risk of bodily harm to save a few dollars on a, yeah. on a widescreen TV. I don't know. It seems crazy to me. But yep. I don't know. Maybe not. So if there's only one doll left and it's a $50 doll and people are just, you know, they're, they're stampeding to get this thing, Joe. Uh, <laughs> painting quite a picture here. And the, and the owner, the owner sees that there's the store owner sees there's one doll left and says, and says, aha, aha, you know, and sees everybody running toward this thing, right. goes and grabs that doll, holds it's, it up and says, it's auction. Time. There's one doll left. This goes to the highest bidder. Is that fair or unfair? Is that okay or not? Okay. Uh, the feeling of a lot of people is that somehow unfair. Like it's unfair to charge more for that doll than you would for than retail price than you would for other dolls. And of course, the auction mechanism is a way of ensuring kind of Pareto optimality, right? That this doll is going to go to the person who values it most. Right. It does make it hard to explain why you didn't auction the next to last doll. Well, the auction is a higher transaction cost mechanism than having standard prices. Ah, so when you go to the uh, store owner and say, why are you willing to shift to an auction now? Why didn't you just have an auction for all the dolls? Right. Because right. part of the unfairness might be attributed to the notion that you're suddenly departing from the way you've been selling this thing to everybody else. And that's what... And what's the difference between me, I just got here a minute ago, and all these other people who got here a day ago. That's right? what Joel Sunstein and Thaler say here, right, is that there's a reference transaction. We have it in our head that there's a certain price, there's a certain way this transaction ought to go, right. which includes the price. And yeah. suddenly we're departing from that. And and all those, to make the Burkean point again, all those prior transactions that are sort of the um, the paradigm transaction, uh, the fact that it was happening in that way consistently for a bunch of people over a bunch of time uh, suggests that that was a price that was, that did well by everyone involved. Mm-hmm. Right? There was a, you know, people were getting something they valued. The store owner was covering his or her costs. That it's, in other words, it was a price that worked. It's it's a little strange, though, isn't it? That that it did work, and and if I weren't fast enough to outrun my fellow shopper, right, and or I didn't have the reach, which was long enough, or the strength to kind of get in there and and get my hands on that doll and get it in my shopping cart, I'm kind of okay with it. Oh, oh well. Right. I mean, I accept the fact that like the first to get the doll was able to buy it at market price. 
Yeah. Which is odd if you think about it, right? That um, there are all kinds of... Right. Well, uh, you could frame it as an auction that's run on strength instead of money. With strength and speed. Or time. And, 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 you know, and, and yeah, exactly. You know, who was willing to wait in line when I wasn't? Right. Or why like is that, that fair and why are other things not mm-hmm. fair? Now, so you could sharpen this as, as, as the authors do and think about the selling of plywood after a hurricane. Right. Right? Where suddenly the, um, the hardware store jacks up the prices of scarce wood when there's huge demand for it by a suffering community. Yep. And now that seems unfair. It's like you are profiteering off of the suffering of a community. I mean, imagine you can even imagine they're selling stuff like bottled water and then when there's a shortage, right? right? You could go as far as that. There's a typical argument that people make that this is just unfair and law should stop it because it's immoral. And what some law and economists say, especially normative law and economists su- suggest is that, no, this is the way that markets work, right? So if, a hardware store charges a lot more for wood um, because it's scarce, right? And they can. That encourages other people to bring in more wood. To bring in more wood. Like normally I wouldn't drive down 10 trucks of wood to this community because the cost of driving down the tractors and, and, uh, and paying the drivers and paying the people to unload it, like all of that makes it not worth it right. for me, right? But now that the wood is going for a lot more, I, I will do that. And so capping the market price has the perverse effect of reducing the supply of a scarce good. That's what the law and economists would say. Yeah, and, and the notion that, that price as a signal, um, the, the, the price people are willing to, to pay, the money people are willing to offer to get something uh, as, a, as an, a, an expression of their, of their demand, right? And that relative to supply. Uh, that, 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 that's, that it is information, and that that information can run through the system and signal to people some other things they might want to do. Hey, I was just going to put leave this stuff here, but I could bring it down there, right? Yeah. Um, you know, that's all. That that all seems right. It is a signal. It is information. That's all true. Um, it does ignore the fact that the typical way we're happy with the price system is when it unfolds over pretty long periods of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it doesn't leave a lot of people empty handed um, in, in the short term in a way that they would have planned to prevent if they could have planned in a convenient way. Right. Right. So it seems like the compression of time is being visited as a harm on a lot of people and a wi- and represents a windfall to a lot of other people. I mean, it's the difference between a hot flash and a sunrise. Like a sunrise <laughs> takes time, to- like it takes the course of time, right? And the air warms a little bit and yeah. it feels fine and it unfolds naturally, right? Right. Whereas if someone sort of blasted you with a heat lamp, <laughs> you it might be the exact same change in temperature, but you're right. like, geez, what's going on with that heat lamp? I think the windfall aspect is is also uh problematic the one that you mentioned right so so the store owner who suddenly makes a lot more off of that doll right okay so this is a way of achieving pareto optimality but why should that person get all of the profits why should the person who happened to ha- already have the wood on hand receive all of the benefit of a hurricane right right now now competition in this price signal story what's going to happen uh people are going to bring more wood price is going to fall yeah. Right. Because suddenly there'll be a lot more supply. The amount of money you need to part with to get it will f- will fall. Right. Um, so the, that that 
big fat margin is going to get competed away in time. But right now it is there yeah. in the pocket of the person who happened to own the wood. But if, if your whole, if your whole like hurricane recovery plan is based on that kind of dynamic happening that look, if there is a hurricane, we can more wood will flow in because there will, it will be scarce and there'll be these profits. You might have to deal with the fact that human beings don't operate according to the rational actor model all the time. Right. And, or at least at the first order. Right. And so the hardware store might not charge everything that they could charge because they have reputational interests in the long run that could be harmed. Like if they're the hardware store that screwed everybody over when people needed it the most, right. they may go out of business in the long run. People won't, and it may not be worth the windfall profits they could have achieved in the few, in the few days before competition came back in and moderated prices. And so maybe they'll be charging, you know, a, a small amount of money. Uh, I mean, uh, uh, relative to what they could charge. They'll be charging ordinary prices or maybe slightly above ordinary. Yep. They'll sell out and then there'll be no wood um, for a while, you know. Uh, and, and so the, now, the cost some, of that or the wood would be allocated inefficiently. There are uh, plenty of states that do have anti-price gouging statutes mm-hmm. to try to deal with these. Uh, another way to think about them is sort of um, it, it's a kind of anti-monopoly law. Uh, where the source of the market power is this very temporary price shock. Right. Uh, because we have concerns about monopoly that accumulates over very long stretches of time. This is one is highly compressed. Right. Right. Um, but but there are plenty of states that have anti-price gouging laws. Um, I guess there are, you're, you're, you've made me think of maybe alternatives, like maybe what's needed is a law that says, or in, in, instead of price gouging uh, prohibition, or maybe in addition to a price gouging prohibition, maybe the state could have a really great role to play by, um, uh, making information available to everyone in the community in a reliable and fast way about who's charging what prices. Yeah. In to order really to... sharpen the reputational consequence. Right. Of being the person who, oh, you know, I'm going to charge the, whatever the market will bear. $1,000 right. for this piece of plywood. But another thing that you could do, right, is to, it, to the extent that you needed wood to make it to that community, I, mean, I don't know why we're using the plywood example, but it makes some sense, yeah. is to offer a subsidy, state subsidy, to people who bring wood to where it's needed and then sure. spread the cost of that subsidy over the community in the form of taxes so sure. that everybody shares. Instead of some people receiving a windfall, you kind of spread right. the benefits and, and spread the costs. Let's, Which is essentially the Coca-Cola bottling case. Yeah. All right. Well, let, exactly. It is, it is exactly that. Um, let's talk really briefly about Tragedy of the Commons. Mm, okay. And the way I want to do that, I'm, I'm going to go through it in class, but I actually want to do that by talking about the prisoner's dilemma. And I want to do that because I want to do a little bit of role-playing here. And Garrett Hardin, I think, did a good job of getting you to think about the rancher's perspective. Mm. Like, why is the rancher putting out cows there right. on that rangeland, even though it is ruinous, right? And he has some numbers there, which make you think, and I'll do some more with numbers uh, in class. But imagine, though, that we are, um, Joe, maybe this isn't, doesn't take much imagination, but imagine that we are criminals. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, <laughs> Hilarious. And we, we've, we had a dastardly plan. Oh, my. Which was foiled. But the cops, they, they can't prove it. They can't, they can't prove that we were going to do the thing. But they did pick us up because maybe we cheated on our taxes mm. or maybe we jaywalked. Mm. Let's Al Capone this thing. So maybe we jaywalked and we're, we're, in, we're in prison. We're in two separate rooms. 
Boy, okay, we can't communicate. Don't put us in prison yet. Put us at the police station. That's what I mean. The jail, the jail, not the prison. But we're at, we're at the jail, and they're How taking us. the police station. Well, we're, they have jails attached to the police. That's where you, they hold you uh, while you're waiting for things. in the back. All right, it's not so the jail. So we're taken to separate interrogation rooms. Okay, okay. And here's what we're facing. Okay, um, Shades of Coen Brothers movies. This is uh, this is what I'm imagining. Yeah. So if we keep our mouths shut, okay, and they can only get us on jaywalking, we will each serve six months in prison. Okay. Okay. Six months in prison. I, I'd rather not. Would you? Definitely not. Yeah, but you know, it is. It is what it is. But if they, <laughs> um, the wages of crime. If if they have to have a trial and prove, you know, what they have against us, uh, you know, if, if they have to prove the dastardly thing, and they are successful, um, in doing that, um, so if we if we both um, if we both kind of squeal and tell them what we were doing and give up our give up each other. We will be sentenced each to, let's say, three years in prison. Three years each. And, and the reason why it's us squealing is because that means they'll have a lot more evidence. They'll have, yeah, they'll, they'll have the evidence that they need to convict us of the dastardly plan, which was maybe, you know, maybe some heist, maybe some bank heist, Joe. That sounds, that sounds reasonable. That doesn't mm-hmm. apply any kind of violence. It seems like a respectable kind of crime. I don't know. <laughs> well, I'm imagining no one's there. Okay. You know, like middle like, of the night, kind like of the thing. movies. Yeah, like the movies yeah. it involves a vault with like, with like laser things and you know all oh, that neat. kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, coming from the ceiling and such. But here's 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 the catch: if I squeal to the cops and I tell them all about this plan, and you don't, right? I'm going to strike a deal with them to testify against you, and I'm going to get no prison time at all, and you're going to take the whole blame, and you're going to go away for five years. Hmm. Doesn't sound too good for you, does it? Really doesn't. Okay, so suppose that's the case. If 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 I squeal and you don't, uh, I get to go free. You go to prison for five years, right? If we both squeal, we each go to prison for three years. We share the blame, mm-hmm. right? And if we keep our mouths shut, six months each. Now the question is, what's going to happen? Now we're back in the land of the rational actor model. Okay, what's going to happen? What would be the best solution for us? To both remain silent. To both remain silent, because then our joint time in prison is one year six months plus six months one year it's minimized any other thing that happens like i squeal you squeal one of us squeals the other doesn't it's three months is three years or or um i'm sorry five years or six years depending on which of those boxes that we're in Right. right now so we know what the efficient solution is here it's for us to keep our mouths shut but what happens well let me remember we can't communicate right right so what are you thinking joe what are you thinking? You think that if you squeal, you what will happen? Well, either you will too, mm-hmm. uh, and I'll get X years, or only I will and you don't, and I'll get a lot less than X years. Mm-hmm. But, so, but the but I definitely don't want to be in a situation where I don't squeal and you do. Right. So let's take it because that's the worst number of years. And in fact, no matter what you, no matter what I do, you're better off squealing. That's the key to this thing. No right. matter what I do, you're better off squealing. Let's, let's see why this is. Suppose that I squeal, right? Are you better off squealing or not squealing? Well, if you don't squeal and I do, you go away for five years, right? So better to squeal or reduce it to yeah. three. If I don't squeal and you do, Better to squeal, reduce three to zero. Yeah. So no matter what I do, you're better off squealing, right? And so what are you going to do as rational prisoner? 
I'm not going to squeal because you and I figured this out. And no, we had a, and we, we couldn't knew. cooperate. The assumption is we can't cooperate. Yeah, but we can. <laughs> I cannot believe that you as a law professor are the one fighting the hypo. <laughs> I just know that you and I would talk about this in advance. Oh, maybe we did talk about it in advance, but that's not where we are now. We are in separate interrogation rooms. Uh, are you really that weak and lame? Look, I'm asking, I'm asking what you are. And I'm, the fact is, the fact is that no matter what I do, you, Joe, are better off squealing. It's, unless you care about me. Unless you care about me. I think we should both not squeal. Because that's what makes us best off. <laughs> Here's the thing, though. If you, uh, the rational actor, if it's not Joe, but it's rational actor over there, rational capitalist calculator, right. the one in the, 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 the rational actor of the law and economics model that we've been using. Right. That Joe will squeal. True. Because no matter what his counterpart does, he's better off squealing. But the thing is, the counterpart is the same way, right? So, so Joe, you're better off squealing because no matter what I do, you'll be better off. Yeah. I'm in the same position. No matter right. what you do, I'm better off squealing. Which suggests we both will, which suggests that this is why we were put in this situation by the police. <laughs> we, so, <laughs> so that because, we would both squeal. Because we both squeal, we end up in... I get three years, you get three years. So our joint time in prison is six years, which is the worst of the possible right. outcomes. That is the essence of the prisoner's dilemma and of Garrett Hardin's tragedy so we of the need commons. A, we need a commitment device mm-hmm. that, makes, that makes remaining silent what makes us better off. Which is why if we were a member of a criminal organization, right, that squealing would have to have external penalties, like kneecap breakage yeah, real bad or ones. assassination. Yeah. Right. To you and your family members. Right. So that, you know, you need some kind of commitment device which keeps you all silent, you right. know, that, 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 that does that. And My and, dogs are currently covering their ears because they're a little worried about this talk of commitment devices. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Because they don't want to get, they don't want to be deprived of their kibble and such mm. to punish me for squealing. Oh, I see. So in class, I'll go over what I see is the four elements necessary for this kind of pathology to occur. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so basically you need some shared resource, which is destructible, right? There's something which can be used inefficiently and it can be a fishery that if you overfish it, it produces fewer fish, right? It can be a rangeland that if you overgraze it, it produces less grazing land, right? Mm. So it's worse than if you used it less intensely. It could be a potential joint prison sentence which if you do the wrong thing can be higher, right? It can be anything that if you act inefficiently toward it can be reduced in value, okay? So it's, a, so it's a resource which is destructible. It has to be open to more than one person, okay? So if it were only open to you, if it was just you and you had a choice to squeal to the cops or remain silent, you'd probably remain silent, right? Because yeah. there's no one else to squeal on. You'd be squealing on yourself, I guess. So, right. But the same thing, like if Garrett, Harden, if Garrett Harden's uh, uh, rancher were the only person on the rangeland he would put out exactly the amount of cows that would maximize his profits, right? And, and no more. He wouldn't put out so many that they ate up the rangeland, and, you know, unless he were irrational. But the assumption is rationality, right? right? The assumption is rationality. The other assumption is that self-interest predominates, right? So in, you kept fighting the hypo partly because I think, you know, we're friends. And yeah. squealing has a cost to you beyond, you know, any harm that would come to you from squealing, it's that, boy, you're going to send your friend to prison. So one reason not to squeal is because, you know, we're friends. I think you see the whole purpose of this series of recordings was to arrive at this moment to figure out, wow, (laughs) would you squeal? (laughs) 
I think you passed. And I the test. wouldn't. And you're very disappointing. <laughs> I think that's the point I've arrived at. I think this may be our last recording. <laughs> and the and and the last the last requirement. There are four legs to this stool. Most the, stools only have three. Yeah, I know. That's the problem with this analogy. But the, the fourth <laughs> the, the fourth the fourth leg here though is that the users are unable to cooperate. They're unable to enforce their cooperation, right? Yeah. So it's like destructible resource, open to more than one person, self-interest predominates, and unable to cooperate. If you have all of those things, tragedy of the commons right. slash prisoner's dilemma. You've got a situation where people's very rationality is going to drive them to use the resource intensively on their own to get as much as they can because they can't keep other people from doing the same. So we get this So you can avoid spiral. that if you can disrupt one of those four Any things. one of those four things, you take them out. So it's like, this is why I, I do this in my property class, right? It's like a stool with four legs. If you can knock any one of them out, well, it won't fall over because a stool only needs three <laughs> legs. So it's a kind of a problem, right? You have to put them at each corner, right? Yeah, yeah. So you, that it's, un, it's, un, it's unstable with the fourth leg missing. Or you have to do something weird with the geometry of space-time. But yeah, so it's all a, it's all a real problem. But, you, potato, but, but imagine you have, you have something which, nece- in order to, to go badly, you need all four things, and you just need to disrupt one. Yeah. So a very common solution to the tragedy of the commons is to create property. Right, so if we have rangeland, which is that's what makes common, it only one person involved. Yeah. yeah, so just make it make it only one person. And in fact, there's some writing, you know, Dim Sets, the, the famous article about like the rise of property regimes is a response to emerging tragedies of the commons. Yeah. Right, and when you have yep. scarcity and overuse, et cetera, that's when you get these property regimes. Yep. And in fact, law generally may be a response to these kinds of tragedies of the commons. Right, um, so. It's a very, very powerful idea. No, the fourth one, which is that, uh, you know, the social enforcement of constraining people to to behave other than self-interestedly. Right. Right. I mean, that's another one that seems like a rather obvious and, and the candidate. kind of the name there that you give to that approach to solving it is governance. Instead of creating property, you try to govern the commons by enforcing norms of behavior that cause people to act more sociably. Yeah. Right. And indeed, it may be that in certain social settings, there's there are enough community bonds and community connections that the uh, the resource management process, a governance approach, might emerge quite naturally within that community without a lot of thought or all about it. It's just <laughs> they figure out, yeah, this is roughly what makes sense. So we should all help one another and keep an eye on things. And this will be how it unfolds. And they'll do it without law. Like even if law is not there, there's a famous story of the lobster gangs of Maine. Right, who are enforcing their share of the lobster fishery, not through like public laws which mm-hmm. dictate who gets what, but through things like I think I think shotguns and other things involved. Somewhat, <laughs> somewhat like like we were talking about, like the mafia kneecap thing as being yeah. a way to enforce cooperation between our prisoners. Right, like what you need to do is to encourage people to act sociably. I'm not a native of Maine. Excuse me. I am a you native, are native I, of Maine. I am a native of Maine. You're a Maina, uh, but I, I am a Maina, but I am not a lobsterman. <laughs> Okay. Was, it, was that it? Is there more to the story? <laughs> it's okay. really not. Are we just saying where we're from now? Is that where well, this is? I, you, you mentioned Maine. I, didn't, uh, I do love a lobster roll. I will say that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's a delicious sandwich. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, the, um, I don't, maybe the students would enjoy this series of podcasts more if it were just a series of sandwich suggestions. <laughs> Um, we, we, will talk, we will talk more in class about those four elements of the tragedy of the commons. We'll look at other examples mm. from fisheries to rangeland to um, some very common situations. I actually have um, 
in, in property classes before mentioned all kinds of situations where people act antisocially, including around the uh, conveyor belts in, in uh, airport uh, uh, luggage situations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, I have an example of people at like a, you ever been in one of those like cafeterias at a very like popular like zoo or something like that, where at lunchtime it's just jam full of people and people are going out to save seats. Mm. Like you go sit down and I'll go get our food. Right. Tragedy of the commons, mm. antisocial behavior. Yeah. Let's see if we can figure out why. So we'll talk about these four requirements and how to knock one of these things out. Okay. And we, we will see like, oh, here's a way that we design law. We design law precisely to avoid this kind of problem. Is that enough for now? Sure. I'm especially hopeful that the story about the airport will allow me to start hitting people around that luggage thing with a stick. <laughs> well, that, that is the mafia solution to, to the problem. You know, I, <laughs> I, at the risk of taking away one good example I had in class, I was thinking more of like painting a line. Um, I'm thinking more of like to, combining the the rationality section with this section, like nudging people a little bit by oh, suggesting okay. that there's a pro. So if you have a circular airport conveyor belt where all the luggage comes out, yeah, right. So if people stand back from the conveyor belt, you know about circles, right, Joe? Sure, I do. Yeah, yeah. More people can fit around a bigger circle. So am true. I right about that? You are so right so about that. So people step back. And then they step forward to retrieve their luggage. More people get to be around the conveyor belt and get their luggage on the first go round rather than having to like elbow yep. people out of the way and all this stuff. Because they can see, everyone can see it. Right. I'm making elbow motions over it's here. Great. This is, I love uh, it. Yeah. Uh, so I was thinking more about like drawing and helping people cooperate by giving them cooperation cues. Hmm. Hmm. Anyway, but maybe I'm more quaint that way. Maybe they don't. I, I don't have the mana instinct. I it guess. is it is it is charming what you're suggesting. <laughs> All right, let let's let these students go. Let's let these poor poor students go. Anything else? <laughs> nope. Bye, guys. <laughs>